Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Hello, Inspire Church family and all of you out there that have been connecting with us. It's so great to see you. My name is Pastor Philip, the lead pastor of Inspire Church. And I'm excited to continue this journey that we're calling His Story. You see, His Story is the story of the advent of God. It's the story of Emmanuel, God with us, God among us. It's a story that will ultimately end one day with God's people in the presence of God, experiencing the blessings of God for all time. And in chapter one of His Story, We saw how God promised a king named David. He promised him that he would have a dynasty and that one day that dynasty would produce an ultimate king and ultimate kingdom that would bless the world for all time. And you know, like any good promise, this promise would produce inside the people of God an expectation of fulfillment, a, a longing, a looking ahead, a looking forward for that day to be one day realized. Like any good promise, hope is produced inside of the one who's being promised. But now, today in chapter two, we run into a problem. You see, sin has a tendency to cause God's people to fail and forget. God's promises. As a result, blessings are delayed and punishment is imminent. And I want to pause right here because that's a very heavy statement. So I want to unpack the idea of blessings delayed and punishment is imminent. You see, there's a few truths that emerge theologically that I think are going to be really helpful for us as we frame the rest of this story. And the first truth is simply this. God is true to his word. Like what he says he will do, he will do. God is the shot caller. When he makes a promise, that promise is a future fulfillment of his purpose. God is true to his word. He will do what he said he will do. But God in his sovereignty, God in his unfathomable wisdom, God has, and this is key, God has predetermined, God has decided to work through his people as channels of his glory. I want to stop right there because humanity has got to be the worst partners of all time. I mean, have you ever had a terrible business partner? I mean, think about a time you partnered with somebody on something and they were like the worst partner ever. I mean, humanity is like that dude in high school or maybe in college. You know who that dude is. Maybe you're that dude. You know, you join a group, you work on a project, you delegate responsibilities, but there's that one guy, and I don't know why in my mind he's a guy, possibly be a girl, but there's that one individual on the team that does absolutely nothing, then he shows up the day the project is due, you turn it in, and he takes the A. 
I mean, humanity's got to be the worst partners of all time, even worse than that. But yet God has chosen to co-labor with us for his glory. So although God will do what he said he will do, God has chosen to work through people to accomplish his glory. So when we look at history, when we look at his story, when we see what we look at and see as disruptions or delays in his agenda, we shouldn't see them as reasons for doubt, but we should see disruptions and delays as formational moments that God is using ready to perfect those vessels, to perfect those partners, to perfect those people that he, that has been called to bring him glory. I want you to understand this. God's agenda is not just about fulfilling a goal, but it's about forming a people for his glory. This means that our God is not in a rush. (laughs) Our God is not in a hurry, right? God has all the time in the world and then some. He is eternal. He lives outside of time. In fact, the only ones who are in a rush and in a hurry is you and I. We work within time, but God works outside of time. We get anxious. We have anxieties, goals, things to get done. But God isn't just about fulfilling a goal. He's about forming a people for his glory. And so when we see moments of disruptions and delays when you feel disruptions and delays even in your own life and you feel the anxiety and anxiousness of wanting to get to a place I want you to know whenever a disruption or delay takes place you have two choices choice number one we can either submit to the father and allow him to perfect us in the delay Or we can abandon God altogether and worship idols. This is what the next two segments of his story will be all about. It'll be about sin, discipline, and delay. But it'll also be about trust, hope, and endurance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would invade our living rooms, invade our cars, invade our workplace, wherever we're listening and watching this right now. I pray that you would invade it with your presence and your spirit, Lord. I pray that this word would not come back void, but I pray that it would accomplish everything it's been sent out to do in the heart of those who are listening and watching right now. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're at home, wherever you're at, and you have a Bible, your Bible app, would you go to 1 Kings chapter 11 for me? 1 Kings chapter 11. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to hold that place for like a long minute because I want to set things up as we enter into chapter two of this story. You see, in 1 Kings chapter 11, David has died. And now his dynasty has began, right? God promised David a dynasty. And so in Kings 11, by the time we get there, David's dead and David's dynasty has began through his son, Solomon. Many of you know Solomon. And for a time, 
God is with Solomon like he has been with David. In fact, God even permits Solomon to do something that he didn't permit David to do. Solomon gets to build that house. Y'all remember last week, David wanted to build a house for God and God said, no, thank you. Now Solomon, David's son, gets to build God a house and it's a glorious temple. And again, just for a moment, Solomon's kingdom, we begin to see a glimmer and a glimpse, a shadow begins to form. And this son of David leads Israel into a time of prosperity. But like the kings who had gone before him, including his father David, Solomon would not finish well. And so we see in 1 Kings chapters 1 through 11, it will cover the reign of Solomon. And then after chapter 11, we'll see a very ugly thing take place. You see, a little history, the book of Samuel will bring us to the Israel's pinnacle. The book of Samuel will bring us to Israel's peak. And then the book of Kings will cover how it all comes crashing down. Now, what will be really important to the rest of his story will be our understanding of the Hebrew concept of king and kingdom. So I'm gonna take a moment. Again, we're still in the setup, so stay with me. I wanna take a moment and I wanna share with you how the Hebrew people viewed king and kingdoms. And it's different than what we believe today. Let me explain. You see, the book of Kings actually should be really called the book of kingdoms. In our westernized culture, when we think of kingdom, we might think of a territory on a map. But the Hebrews saw the kingdom as the reign of a king. So, so kingdom was not a location or an area, but an authority or a system of government. And if that system was submitted to God, it would be like David's kingdom. For Israel, and this is important, David's kingdom was the standard by which all subsequent kingdoms were measured by. Every kingdom that came after David's was compared to David's. Now, what's really critical to our story is that the kingdom, this is how kingdom works. The character and conduct of the king would always determine the fate of the nation. As the king went, so did the people. Now, this kind of reminds me of our presidential elections, politics in general for the last four years. But specifically this year, if you watch the debates, this is what it reminds me of. Because while watching the debates, I, I, I would get frustrated. I, 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 sometimes I would laugh. It was like watching a reality TV show. I mean, the pettiness, the name calling, the lack of civility. But what was amazing, and I actually posted this on Facebook, I was kind of curious, what debates were going to get more petty, the presidential debates or the Facebook debates, the social media debates? But as I was watching these debates and as I was kind of having a, 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 just an ugly feeling in my stomach, I realized something. As disgusted or frustrated those debates made me, I realized they were simply a reflection of America. We weren't just watching two men, but we were watching the country, 
right? What these two men said and what these two men did, it, it, it was a reflection of what we were saying and what we were doing. They were no different than us. We were no different than them. And that was, this, that was the idea of a Hebrew kingdom. The conduct and character of the king determined the fate of the nation. So for the rest of our time together, we're going to dive into 1 Kings 11. And I want to pay attention to these three elements in the story. Number one, the character of the king. Number two, the fate of the nation. And then we're going to land the plane with the longing for something greater. Again, if you're taking notes, the character of the king, the fate of the nation, and then we'll conclude by a longing for something greater. If you had your Bible saved, we're there. Open with me to 1 Kings chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1 through 8. Scripture reads like this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign wives. Say, "Uh uh-oh, just right where you're at. King Solomon loved many foreign wives. This is not good. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite. Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. Now watch this. He had 700 wives eh, eh, who were princesses and 300 concubines. That's a thousand women. And his wives turned his heart, turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place to Shamash, the abomination of the Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Wow. I'm sure Solomon never dreamt he'd become a man who would turn his heart from God, pursue idolatry, and jeopardize his family's claim to the throne. Yet this is what compromise does. We must pay careful attention to the character of the king. You see, the first thing we see Solomon doing is disobeying the simple commands of the Lord. He disobeys God's original design of one man and one woman united together in marriage in Genesis 1. He disobeys God's command, prohibiting marriage to foreign women in Deuteronomy 7. And he does not just do this once or twice, but he literally does this hundreds of times. He had a thousand woman harem. Now, if you just take a step back, this illustrates the very nature of compromise, doesn't it? 
I mean, I want you to think about it. Compromise begins with self-confidence. It's just one. It's just one foreign wife. I can handle it. But it quickly moves from self-confidence to self-justification. It's just one wife. I can handle it. And besides, this is politically expedient for me. I mean, imagine the political advantages of marrying the women from the kings and the people around us. Imagine the alliances that we could have. You see, the compromise of sin goes from self-confidence. I can handle it. It's just one. To self-justification. Besides, it's, it would be good for me. To self-indulgence. If I can get away with one, I can get away with two. If I can get away with two, I can get away with more. Until finally, this downward spiral of compromise leads to self-sabotage. Entrapped, enslaved, addicted, stuck, in too deep, nowhere else to go. This is the story of compromise. One simple step outside of the boundaries of God has now become a complete shift in the heart of God. And if you're listening, I just want to repeat the steps of compromise because I think it has something to say to you and I today. Self-confidence, it's just one drink, just one night. Self-justification, it's good for me. It feels good. Self-indulgence, I think I'm going to do another one. I think I'm going to have another one. Finally, self-sabotage. I'm trapped. I'm stuck. I'm addicted. I'm enslaved. One simple step outside of the boundaries of God has now become a complete shift in the heart of the king. Now watch this, Solomon's divided heart can't help but tolerate idolatry. Solomon's divided heart, he's in too deep, he's gone too far, can't help but tolerate idolatry. Now, I want to clarify something for you today, I think that's really important. You see, a lot of times... We look at uh, the law of God, the prohibitions of God, and we just see them as laws and prohibitions, as if God is just this cosmic buzzkill. He's this cosmic killjoy. He just likes to say no. And we fail to grasp, ready, the purpose behind the law, the purpose behind the prohibition, right? It's not just a boundary, but it's a beautiful boundary. You see, what God is doing is he's protecting the big picture. But we can be so full of ourselves that we fail to see the beautiful boundary of God. I want you to know God's command against taking foreign wives was not just about Actually, it wasn't about at all race mixing. It wasn't about God not wanting Israelites to marry people outside of their race. See, if you read the story, foreign wives brought with them their foreign gods and ritual practices of worship. This wasn't about race mixing. This was about Solomon's heart. This was about him turning away from God and jeopardizing the plan and the promise. God's law was protecting Solomon from a divided heart, 
a divided house and a divided kingdom that would compromise God's plan and promise for Israel. And we see it in Solomon's heart. He loved God, but he clung to his foreign wives. Have you ever been in that tension place? You love God, you, you want God, but there's something else that you're holding on to, you're clinging on to. There's these dual loves beginning to take place in your life, and you're convinced that you can hold on to both, but one day a divided heart has to choose one master or the other. You can't serve two. You will love one and hate the other. Solomon's heart, he loved God. But he clung to his foreign wives. And in Solomon's house, he worshiped Yahweh, but he permitted his wives to worship idols. With this kind of radical division, double-mindedness, it was only a matter of time before, are you ready? Solomon's toleration turned into his participation. Right? With that kind of double-mindedness, with that kind of loving God and bringing compromise along the way, we keep compromise in the pocket. It's only a matter of time before toleration turns into participation. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Solomon's toleration turned into his participation and the fate of the nation was compromised. Now there's two verses in the story that capture this tragic conclusion perfectly. Verse four said this, when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And we're told he went after, he chased, he pursued what the scripture writers would ultimately call abominations. Total abandonment of God and surrender to idols started with a disobedience to God's word. Now Solomon finds himself actively engaging and pursuing in those detestable practices that he swore he'd never take part of. Listen, when you begin to read this story and I read to you names like Ashtoreth, Shemash, or Molech, this could all just sound like some ancient gibberish. But let me briefly describe to you what it meant to chase after and pursue these gods. You see, all these gods required some kind of offering. That's how idolatry works. It requires some kind of offering, something that you must give to it in exchange for its favor, in exchange for its services. You see, Ashrith was the goddess of fertility and sexuality and her worship required priestess prostitutes and sexual deviancy. The god Shamash had a taste for blood and human sacrifice while the god Molech, he had a taste for children, children's sacrifice. One description of Molech's ceremonies goes like this. An enormous bronze statue would be erected to Molech. At the base of the bronze statue, they would light it with fire. It would take some time, but that bronze statue would eventually begin to heat up. Out of the bronze statue, there would be hands. What people would do is they would take their children, give it to the priest. The priest would place the hands of their children inside of the hands, the bronze boiling hands of this god Molech. 
And in that moment, the babies would be sacrificed. They would be burnt and broiled alive. And you know what they would do? When they would place the babies in the hands of Molech, the priests would bang the drums and they begin to chant to drown out the cries of the baby so the parents who were sacrificing the baby would not be distraught by the cries. This is what Solomon was doing in his kingdom. Verse 7 says this, Then Solomon built a high place for Shamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites. I want you to pay, pay attention to this. Where did he build these abominations? Here it is. On the mountain east of Jerusalem. You see, just a generation before, David had founded Jerusalem and has established it as the kingdom of God. David had brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was God's city with God's people. Yet here east in the mountain of Jerusalem, uh, Solomon built these temples to these gods. And here is the most crazy, ironic thing. Solomon, in his early years as a young man, actually built Yahweh's temple. Now here in his latter years as an old man, he was building competing temples to false gods. What an abomination. Just look how far his compromise has taken him. This looks nothing like his father David's kingdom. Compromise and sin has reduced failure and forgetfulness to the promises of God. Now listen, for the sake of his glory and the blessing of the world, God must intervene. Go with me to 1 Kings 11, verse 11 through 13, and we're going to find the conclusion of Solomon's kingdom. Israel will never be the same. Listen, verse 11 says this. Therefore, the Lord said to Solomon, since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Yet, I love this, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all of the kingdom. You see that? There's promise. There's hope. There's hope there. I will not tear away all of the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son. I'm going to preserve David's line because I made a promise. I'm going to give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Now, what's going to happen in just a few short years, civil war will break out and the kingdom of Israel will split into two. If you know the history of Israel, 10 tribes to the north will form Israel and two tribes to the south will form Judah. Israel will free fall with one terrible king after another committing abominations and idolatry until finally they'll be taken away captive to Assyria. Judah, on the other hand, it will fall a little bit slower. Uh, it will fall, and Judah will preserve David's line. And, and there will be brief moments. There'll be two kings that will come in and that will, for a moment, give us a glimpse. But ultimately, Judah will fall to idolatry and abomination. In the end, they'll be taken away to captive to Babylon. Now, I want to finish this story. I want to conclude this morning. 
as God's people, talking to you and I, as God's people in waiting, we must understand his story because his story is our story. This is history. You see, the book of Kings was written to a people in exile. And so as you and I are reading the story in Kings, the people of God who were in Babylon in exile were reading the story of Kings. The book of Kings was written to a people in exile. It was written to a people who were in the dark asking questions and facing doubts. God, where is this king and kingdom you promised David? Yes, we've had glimmers. Yes, we've had glimpses of hope, but those are only shadows and they've left us behind and they've enslaved us and we've ended up in the very place where we started, in slavery. You see, Kings was written to God's people exiled in Babylon. This is big. And it was written to answer this question. Why are we here? How did this happen? Kings was written to a people exiled in Babylon meant to answer the question, how did we get here? Why did this happen? You see, you might not know this, but this was the circumstances of Christmas. You say, what does this have to do with Christmas? This is the nature of Advent. It's a cry for hope in the middle of the dark. The book of Kings says, God, when will you send us a king who can finish well? And God will respond, behold, a virgin shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. In some ways, we find ourselves experiencing this kind of Advent angst right now. If you're watching, 2020 has been one disaster after another. Disillusioned by our own failed policies, kings and political shadows. Disheartened by the marginalization of the poor, the black and the brown and disturbed by the shadow of death being casted over our nation as we face a pandemic of global proportions during Christmas season. Today, right now, as I preach this sermon, 283,958 Americans will have died of COVID-19. We're up to 2,918 deaths a day. From now until Christmas, it's projected that there could be over 19,000 Americans that will not make it to Christmas dinner. So what should a child of God do in the midst of this Advent angst as we find ourselves in a dark land, exiled in a home that's not our own, waiting for a king? What should a child of God do in the midst that all we're facing right now. What should we do? Two things, two simple things. Number one, we should look back at King Jesus who came and finished well. Man, this gets me excited. David didn't finish well. Solomon didn't finish well. Saul didn't finish well. The kings of Israel did not finish well. The cry of God's people in exile is, God, when will you send us a king who will finish well? King Jesus finished well. He finished so well that when he said, it is 
finished. He created peace between man and God. He hung on a tree. He finished so well. He was perfect. He made no mistake. There was no record of wrong. He finished well. He did all that God asked. He obeyed him, did not bow to idolatry. He finished well. And on the cross, he hung. He finished well. He said, it is finished. And when he died, he took on the penalty that you and I deserve. And he gave us his perfect righteousness. Jesus finished well. What do we do when we're in a time of darkness? We look back to the king who came and finished well. But that's not all we do. We look back to the king who finished well. And we look ahead. We look ahead for King Jesus who will return and make all things new. And you want to know the most beautiful thing about the glorious return of King Jesus? He will establish his kingdom and it will not be a shadow. It will not be a glimpse or a glimmer. It will be heaven on earth. No more pain, no more suffering, no more death, disease, decay. We will be perfected in the presence of God and our King Jesus and his kingdom will reign forever. Now watch this. And as the king goes, so will his people. Come in the midst of this dark time. Let us adore him. Let us repent of our compromise and sin and let us look to the king who finished well. I want to invite you to pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we magnify you. We lift you up. We adore you even in darkness, even surrounded by death. God, we can sing praises. Your children, even in exile, your children looking around and not seeing things how they should be. God, disillusioned, disenfranchised. We sing hallelujah. Emmanuel, God with us has come and he will come again. You are our hope, our living hope. We cling and we trust you. We look back to the cross where you finish well and we look ahead to when you will come back and bring heaven to earth. Not a glimmer, not a glimpse, not a shadow, but your kingdom. And as the king goes, so will we, his people, go too. God, in the midst of this time, we, we love you and our hope is full and our joy is complete in you. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspire Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.